All right, you guys can turn to Acts chapter 9. As we continue our study of the book of Acts this morning, we'll look at the story of Paul and his conversion in Acts 9. I don't know if you guys know this, but if you're parents, you really should. It's really fun. The, the uh, Texas A&M chemistry department puts on the chemistry magic show every year. It's actually run by uh, chemist that goes to our Anderson campus, Jim Pennington. He does an amazing job. So he, he gathers all of these fellow chemists over at the chemistry hall, and they do all of these amazing reactions, and they just look like magic, and, and they'll enthrall your kids. So, so here are my kids. We took Luke and Gracie last year to see the, the chemistry magic show, and I mean, they were like this for an hour. I mean, just totally zoned in. They loved it, because what's not to love? You're mixing a bunch of chemicals, and, and heat and stuff is blowing up, and lights are going off, and it's just incredible. There's, there's all these dramatic transformations happening. The, the kid's favorite is the one on the right there. It's called Elephant's Toothpaste. You, you mix a little hydrogen peroxide dish soap, add a catalyst, and boom, it just goes off instantly. And so my kids are so enthralled. They actually think that Jim is a magician. They call him Wizard Jim. because they're just, they're just amazed at these amazing dramatic transformations that happen. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a sudden, amazing, dramatic transformation that is, in a sense, every bit as magical as this, every bit as dramatic as this. We're going to look at the transformation of a person who, in the text, is named Saul, but you know him as the Apostle Paul. We're going to see God do something in Paul's life that is so sudden and so dramatic that in a sense it looks like magic. It looks supernatural. It's God kind of magic. There's no natural way to explain what is going to happen to this man in Acts chapter 9. So many of you are familiar with this story, but I want to walk you through and explain the details, kind of piece it together for you. So if you look with me in Acts chapter 9. Let's jump in in verse 1 as we look at this story of of Saul becoming Paul. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, you met Saul a couple chapters ago. At the end of chapter 7, he watched over the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr in the church, and Saul approved of that. So Saul was there. Now, now what do we know about Saul? Well, he tells us a little bit about his life before meeting Jesus in chapter 9. He describes his life before Christ in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew of Hebrew, it means that that Saul was not just a Jew, he was the best possible 
Jew. He was of, of the tribe of Benjamin. That was an honored tribe in the Old Testament. King Saul came from that tribe, so he had great genetics, you might say. He had, had a good family that he came from. It says that he was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were scholars of the law. He knew the law by memory. He knew the Old Testament by heart, and he spent all of his time practicing the Old Testament. He goes on in this same passage And he says, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. He was such a zealous Jew that he spent his time hunting down the enemies of Judaism, who were the Christians. In the eyes of a Pharisee, the enemy was a Christian because a Christian committed blasphemy. A Christian called a man who was a carpenter who was crucified on a Roman cross, which was a humiliating way to die, a Christian called that man God, and that was unacceptable to a fervent Jew. So Paul chased him down. Saul, he hunted Christians. He had them arrested. He had them imprisoned. He had them executed. He was the greatest Jew of Jews. That's why it says, according to the law, he was found blameless. Other Jews would look at Paul and say, wow, this guy is incredible. He is the best among us. Paul was a Jew of Jews, the best out there. And so as we think about Saul, what we want to understand is that there has never been a man who was more unlikely to convert from Judaism to Christianity. From a human perspective, he had absolutely nothing to gain. He had everything under Judaism. It would be like Hillary Clinton becoming uh, part of the Tea Party. That's not going to happen. It would be like Bill Gates being seen using a Macintosh. That's never going to happen. Just can't happen. That's like Saul becoming a Christian. Just can't happen. It's absolutely impossible that this man, a Jew of Jews, a persecutor of Christians, would become a Christian himself. Well, our God is kind of in the business of doing impossible things. And so God gets hold of Saul's life in the next verse, verse 3, if you look there. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, so, so Saul has an encounter with Jesus, starting in verse 3. And that encounter is going to change everything for him. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't look like he did back in the Gospels. Jesus does not appear to be a humble carpenter's son anymore. Now, this is after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So now he is the glorified creator and Lord of the universe who rules. And he shows up to Paul in all of that glory. And it just, it knocks Paul to the ground. It absolutely terrifies Paul to see Jesus in all of his glory. And then out of that bright, shining, blinding light, Jesus speaks and he says, Saul, Saul. He repeats the name. And in, in Aramaic, that is how you, how you showed emotion. So this, this is an intense moment. Saul understands that Jesus is quite upset with what he's been doing. 
He senses that Jesus is very emotional in this moment as he's speaking to this man who has been persecuting him. And did you notice that interesting detail? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, but me. Now, now Jesus had already died and risen and ascended to heaven before Paul ever gets onto the scene. So Paul never directly persecuted Jesus, but Jesus wants Saul to understand, if you hurt my people, you hurt me. Jesus is, is so in us and, and with us that when people persecute us, they are persecuting Jesus, and Jesus doesn't take that kindly. It's very serious to Jesus. This is a serious thing, and Paul gets that. Paul understands the, the gravity of this moment, and so he responds in, in humility and, and in fear, who are you, Lord? He knows this is, this is no one to be trifled with. Lord, Master, who are you? He still doesn't get it yet. He hasn't quite put two and two together. He's confused. He's not understanding exactly what's going on. Doesn't yet know who's speaking to him. So Jesus explains, I, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting. And that statement, that, that little truth, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting, that truth changes everything for Paul. That, that realization, this moment of, of insight changes everything in Saul's life from this moment on. And so before this moment, he was the persecutor of the church. Now he's going to become a, a member of the church now that he has seen the risen Jesus. And so he's so overwhelmed by this encounter that Jesus gives him a little bit of time to just reflect on it, just stew on it. So Jesus leaves Saul blinded. And he has to be walked by the hand to Damascus where he just sits and fasts for three days. He just sits there and thinks about what has happened, what, what he has seen for three days. Okay, and this, this time to reflect, this time to think about this encounter, it changes everything for Paul. First, it changes his identity. Paul gets a, a new identity in the, in the next few verses. If you'll look with me starting in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a, a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Okay, so this is a, a new identity, a, a transformative moment for Saul. He was the enemy, the persecutor of the church, so much so that Ananias knew about him. He, he knew who Saul was, and he was terrified of him. But, but Jesus showed himself, revealed himself to Saul, and so now Saul is called by Jesus a, a chosen instrument. Chosen instrument of mine to bring grace, to bring the gospel to the nations. And then Ananias shows up, puts a hand on Paul, and what does he call him? brother. 
So Saul has gone from enemy to brother. He's one. He's become part of the Christian family, the family of God. So he receives a new identity through this encounter with Jesus, and he receives a new mission through this encounter with Jesus. God doesn't leave Paul on the bench for long. Really quickly, he gets Paul into the game. He moves Paul into a a new mission in life. Look with me at verse 19. And he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So Saul immediately gets to work. God sends him out on a mission to become a witness of the gospel. And he goes into the synagogues and he preaches about Jesus and he explains, he does apologetics. He shows how Jesus is the Christ. It's a complete 180 degree turn in Saul's career, in his profession. He goes from persecuting Christians to trying to convince people to become Christians. So as you look at the life of Saul and this encounter with Jesus, it it really is like magic. It's supernatural. It's instantaneous and dramatic. He has a complete 180-degree turn that happens in an instant when he encounters Jesus, when he sees and hears Jesus. It's an amazing story. This would really make a great movie. I think I'd love to see this. I'd love to go to Cinemark and watch this on the big screen. But I struggled this week. I got to Wednesday, and I've been studying the passage, working through it. And I really began to struggle because I was wondering, God, what does this story have to say to us today? What does it mean for us? Because I'm guessing you're probably like me. You have probably never had Jesus show up to you in all of his glory and speak to you and tell you what to do. Hasn't happened in my life yet. Maybe that'd be great if it happens one day, but that's not how God works 99.9999% of the time. So for those of us who are not going to see Jesus in all his glory in this life or hear Jesus in all his glory in this life, then what does this story have to to say to us? What does it mean for us who are not going to have this moment, this encounter with Jesus in his glory like Paul did? I really wrestled with that this week. And then I began to reflect, I began to pray through, God, what does this story say to us? What does it do for us? What does it mean for us? And I, I stumbled upon, I kind of came to four things that, that I think Paul's story is meant to say to us today. Four very practical things that you need, that I need, that this story can give us today. Paul's story in Acts 9 is amazing transformation. It can silence our doubts. It can relieve our fears. It can drive away our hopelessness. And it can prove to us that we are loved. That's what this story is about for you today. So I'm going to walk you through these four things. First thing that this story, this amazing story about Saul can do for you It can silence your doubts. Don't know if you know this, but Acts chapter 9, the story of Saul becoming Paul, is actually one of the greatest pieces of evidence we have for the Christian faith. It's actually very strong apologetics. It's an explanation of why it's reasonable to believe in Jesus. 
So let, let me walk you through this. Let me help you to, to understand. Uh, when we look at Saul, who is Paul, there's a number of things about his life that we can verify outside the Bible. And because of that, even people who don't believe the Bible, secular scholars who, who doubt that this is the word of God, there's a number of things that, that they will have to agree with. Almost every secular scholar out there will agree to these four facts. We, of course, agree with them, but they, they would too. Even non-Christian scholars would have to agree with these four facts. Number one, a guy named Paul lived. Guy named Paul, who is in your Bible, really lived in the first century. There's just way too much evidence out there to deny that. So he really lived. Second, he persecuted Christians. We can trace that down. We can tra- he persecuted Christians. He spent his early years hunting followers of Jesus. Almost every secular scholar would agree with that. Third, they would all agree that somehow this man named Paul, who was persecuting Christians, became a Christian himself. He became a follower of Jesus. Now, secular scholars are not going to believe the amazing account in Acts chapter 9, but they're going to believe that somehow he took a 180-degree turn in life went from persecutor to a Christian himself. And finally, fourth fact that even almost every secular scholar out there would have to agree, this man named Paul, he suffered greatly because of his allegiance to Jesus and then wrote about that suffering in at least seven books of the New Testament. The seven books that Paul wrote, now we think he wrote a lot more, There's seven of them that are called the undisputed epistles. Even non-Christian scholars believe these were written by a real man named Paul who was a Jew who hated Christians and became a follower of Christ himself. There are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians and Philemon. No one doubts those were written by Paul. Okay, so you you put all this together. You you look at, at the life of this man and you look at these four facts and somehow we have to explain how these four things are true. Even if you don't believe in the Bible, you've got to explain, how do we have these four facts that everybody agrees on? How do we explain why a man who had everything under Judaism would abandon it all to follow Jesus and suffer for Jesus and die for Jesus? Because he did. We can prove that. He was beheaded. So how do you explain those, those facts? Why would a man who had everything under Judaism leave it all? Paul was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was blameless according to Judaism. You look at, at his life, you look at Acts 22, Paul said of himself, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. Paul was educated by a teacher named Gamaliel. Doesn't mean anything to you, but in the ancient world it meant tons. Very famous scholar. He's called Gamaliel the Elder. When he died, the Jews actually wrote, they wrote about this guy and they said the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died when Gamaliel died. That's how famous he is. One of the most famous Jews of that whole time period. To be educated by Gamaliel back then was like if Bill Gates taught you software engineering. It's probably good to put on your resume, huh? Or if William Buffett taught you how to invest, Probably good. You're going you're gonna to know what you're doing if a guy like that taught you. Well, that's what it was like 
to be taught by, by this man. It was like Paul went to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard. He had the best possible education. And because of that, Paul rose in the ranks. He tells us in the book of Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He rose in the ranks. He was a Jew above other Jews. And by the time we meet him in Acts chapter nine, you may not, you may not realize this when you read it, but the fact that Paul could go on this trip to Damascus to go hunt Christians, it meant he was rich. He didn't have to work a job like you. No, he, he could leave anytime he wants. He can leave. He can go on this trip to go persecute Christians because he is independently wealthy and he has enough power. I mean, think about how much power he has. He, there's no phones. There's no fax. There's no internet. He can just walk into the city of Damascus and arrest any Jew he finds. He had power over their life or their death. He was a rich and privileged man. So Paul, Saul, he was not a seeker. He was not like a sad person. He was not hopeless. He was not looking for salvation. He was not sad and drinking himself to sleep at night. He had everything. He had no reason to believe in Jesus. He was not trying to believe in Jesus. He did not want to believe in Jesus. He had everything under Judaism. And yet, for some reason, he gave it all up. He gave all of it up. Not just the religious commitment, but everything that came with it the privilege, the prestige, the wealth. When we meet him later, he's making tents. He is supporting himself with manual labor because he lost what he had. And he's lost the privilege. He's lost all of the power. It's, it's gone. If you look at chapter 9, look at chapter 9. And actually, it, it vanishes really, really fast. Look back at chapter, at chapter 9, verse 23. Paul begins to speak about Jesus, talk about Jesus. And look what happens immediately after verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. That's a nice way of saying they're going to kill him. So the, the hunter has become the hunted now he is persecuted. He's lost everything. And, and the rest of Paul's story, as you continue to read the book of Acts, he's got no home. He's got no family. He's got very few friends. He has no wealth. He is being pursued. He's being chased from city to city by people who want to kill him. And finally, he's arrested, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, and executed for his commitment to Christ. So somehow, even secular scholars, they, they have to explain how these four facts are true. Why would a man who we know lived, we know he existed, we know he had everything under Judaism, why would he give all of it up to follow Jesus and suffer for Jesus and die for Jesus? The only reasonable explanation is that he really met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's the only reasonable way to put the historical data together. Paul really lived and he really met Jesus in glory on the road to Damascus. Just looking at the life of Paul is in and of itself enough evidence for your faith. There was a guy, a rich guy, a baron, who lived in England back in 1740, was named George Littleton. And he went to Oxford to research Christianity in order to prove it false. That was his goal. So he goes off to Oxford because he had lots of money. He's going to go off, spend his time researching Christianity to prove that we are fools. Instead, he ended up becoming a Christian himself. And the thing that led him to Christ was, 
was Paul, Paul's conversion, Acts chapter 9. And he concluded after all of this study, he said, I thought the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity a divine revelation. That is just a fancy British kind of way of saying Paul proves it's true. Because Saul became Paul, your faith is not in vain. Because Saul became Paul, Jesus is real. And your faith in him is reasonable. So this amazing, magical story in Acts chapter 9, it's there to give you faith, to give you confidence, to drive away your doubts. It's first reason. Second reason that God has given us this story. Second thing that it can do for us today. Paul's story of conversion can relieve our fears. There's so much to fear in the world today. All you've got to do is go to CNN or Fox News or Washington Post right now on your phone. And on the front page, you will find lots of things to be afraid of. There's a war in Syria, and now somehow Russia is involved, and that is just crazy. And there is all this instability in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East, and there is terrorism going on all over the world. And now there are crazy people with guns walking into schools in America and shooting people. That is just a lot of stuff to be afraid of. We live in a world that is full of fear. There are so many bad things happening. There are so many bad people who do horrendous things. And that's why we need this story in in Acts chapter 9. Because, you see, Saul was about as bad a person as you can get. Saul was a bad man. Saul was prideful. He was selfish. He was hateful. He was violent, and he had the money and the power to act on his violent tendencies. And so he hunted down men and women who had done nothing other than believe in Jesus. He imprisoned and executed innocent men and women. So you had a very bad man in Saul, horrible man who did horrible things. He was as bad an enemy as Christianity has ever faced, worse than anybody living in the world today at persecuting the church, and, and yet God was sovereign over every step that Saul took. Saul was never outside of God's sovereign plan. Now, that doesn't mean that God was responsible for the evil things Saul did. He made his choices. He was held responsible. God never ordains or allows evil, never. But your God is so powerful, that's what sovereignty is about. He's so powerful, so wise, so good, that even bad people and bad situations fit within his plan. He will move them and use them and turn them for good. And that's what he does with Saul. He moves in Saul's life to redeem it, to, to save it. So he works in this incredibly evil man to lead him to Damascus so Jesus can appear to him and God can take the most evil man on earth and turn him into the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, Paul, that's a huge win for God. Huge win. Turns enemy number one into friend number one great apostle to the Gentiles, because God is sovereign. And so he is sovereign over bad people and bad situations. He can turn bad people into good people anytime he wants. God has been doing that throughout human history. I'll just remind you of a few examples from your Old Testament. Pharaoh, king of Egypt back in Exodus, really evil man. And yet God works in and through Pharaoh's life and around Pharaoh's life. He sends 10 miraculous plagues and Pharaoh has to let God's people go because God is in control. 
God's the one who ultimately calls the shots and delivers his people from an evil man like Pharaoh. Sennacherib, you may not have heard that name before. He was the king of a massive empire called Assyria back in the day. They wiped out all these kingdoms, including the northern kingdom of Israel. But Sennacherib, he brings his army of 185,000 soldiers and surrounds Jerusalem, and he's going to wipe it out around 700 BC, and then God sends some angels, and they kill all of them, wipe out the entire army in one day, and Sennacherib runs back to Assyria, never comes back again. I was looking at some maps this week, a map of of the Assyrian Empire. It's the whole world that was settled at that time with one red circle around Jerusalem. Only place he couldn't capture. Why? Because your God is sovereign. When he wants to wipe out an enemy army, he does it right now. It's done. Another example, Nebuchadnezzar, another big name for you. He led the next kingdom on earth. It was called Babylon, really big kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful, violent, evil man who was humbled by God through four men who you've heard of, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God uses these men to break Nebuchadnezzar down, to humble him so that Nebuchadnezzar actually becomes a believer. He comes to believe in the one true God. And late in his life, he says this. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is a a pagan king who is now a believer. This is what he says. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, that is the God of Israel, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar understood, he got it, he figured it out that our God is sovereign even over bad people in bad situations. That doesn't mean that he ever ordains or causes evil, but he's so powerful and he's so wise that he can control all things, that he can use all things for good. Nothing happens on this planet that God doesn't allow to happen for some greater good. It's what Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, chapter 21. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So kings, presidents, CEOs, politicians, some of them do bad things. And yet none of them does anything that God doesn't allow to happen. He turns their hearts, he leads their lives as his sovereignty sees fit. Our God is in control. He reigns from heaven. He's sovereign at all times and in all places. And actually, it was Paul's teacher, that man named Gamaliel, who who really understood it. I want you to look back, chapter 5. Turn back to chapter 5 real quick. Acts chapter 5. The religious leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they pull Peter and John in before them, and they're interrogating them. And then Gamaliel stands up and and he says this. Look with me, chapter 5, verse 38. He says, So in the present case I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. His point is, even if all the powers of human government align against something that God is doing, God will always win. God will always accomplish everything that God wants to accomplish. Our God is sovereign at all times over all people, and that leads us to ask a convicting question, so why are we afraid? Why do we fear what's going on in the world? If the God of Acts 9 is the God that we worship today, then why are we afraid? 
When we see evil growing, violence growing, war growing in our world, why does that worry us? Worries everybody else. That makes sense because they don't know God, but we do. We know the sovereign God who holds all things in his hands. So why are we afraid? There is no reason for us to fear things going on in this world. Nothing will happen in your world, in your life, that God doesn't allow to happen for a greater reason. You may not see that reason in this life, but it's there. God is sovereign. He's watching over all things. So here we are in the midst of another election cycle, and there are tons of news outlets that are making their revenue by peddling fear. That's what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to make people afraid all the time. Please don't fall prey to that. You have no reason to fear anything going on on this planet. Because your God is Lord of heaven and earth, and he's got this. He's got it figured out. Nothing's going to surprise him. Nothing's going to overwhelm him. Nothing's going to stress him out this election season. He's got it all in his hands, and he's going to, in his wisdom and grace and goodness and power, work all of it for good, even if we don't see it. So Paul is proof. You have nothing to fear. If God can lead a man as evil as Saul into the fold of God's family, he can do it again. He can save evil people. He can redeem evil situations. You have nothing to be afraid of. Third thing that this story says to us, what it means to us today, Paul's story can drive away hopelessness. I've always gotten a kick out of those infomercials on TV where someone will take a knife and cut a shoe or an aluminum can. And, and I laugh at those because I think, you know, I, I'm really, I'm not looking to cut a shoe in half in my kitchen. That's not what I happen to do in my kitchen. Um, but it is actually good advertising, right? Because they're showing hey, if if our knife is sharp enough to cut a shoe, then it can probably cut your tomato. Your tomato's probably gonna be okay. Our knife, so they're proving the value of their product by testing it in the hardest possible situation. Well, that's Acts 9. God is gonna prove the value of his grace by testing it on the hardest heart imaginable. So he takes like the ultimate lost cause. That's Saul. He's like the the ultimate lost cause in life. God is going to prove the power of his grace by redeeming a man like this. And that's actually something that that Paul comes to understand. He says towards the end of his life when he writes the book of 1 Timothy, he says in chapter 1, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul knew, man, I've blown it. I persecuted Christians. I ridiculed Jesus. I murdered innocent men and women. Murder. I mean, like, that's like the top of the list of bad things. He was the worst of sinners, and yet God saved him. Why? Paul tells you in the next verse, verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. God took Saul, the worst person you could imagine, so far beyond hope, and saved him, redeemed him, transformed him to prove to all of us that no one is beyond hope. No one is beyond Jesus' patience. He can save anyone. He can transform anyone. That's what Paul's life shows us. 
Because of Paul, we know that no one living is beyond hope of God's grace. No one living is beyond hope of God's grace to save them or to transform them. God can save any non-believer. God can transform any believer into the likeness of Jesus, and Paul's the proof of that. If he can do that with Paul, he can do that with you. That includes all the people that we've given up hope on. It's, it's easy for us to think that, that surely God would never save the really evil people on this planet. Surely God would never save the leaders of ISIS, right? Well, no, that's easy for God. That's nothing compared to Paul. Surely God would never save the, the people who, who lead Planned Parenthood and bring them into the fold and make them lovers of life. No, that's easy for God. He does that kind of thing all the time. Surely God can't save really immoral people who are caught up in sex and drugs and criminality. No, that's, that's what God does. That's actually the whole point of the prodigal son story. Remember, prodigal son, he takes his father's money and spends it all on prostitutes. And then what does the father do? Welcome home, son. Okay, so what God is showing us is that no one on earth, even those people, those really bad people, are beyond hope. No one is beyond hope, and that includes you. That includes you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've got going on in your past, no matter what darkness hangs over you, no matter what you did last night, you are not beyond hope. God can save you, God can redeem you, God can transform you, God can heal you, God can deliver you, God can grow you and transform you. But wait, you say, Blake, you don't, you don't know what I've done. I've done some really wicked things. I've done some things that keep me awake at night that I can never tell anyone. They just, they're so bad they can never be forgiven. Well, I, I will ask you then, did you murder innocent men and women simply because they believed in Jesus? You haven't? Okay, well, God forgave a man who did. God forgave the guy who murdered his people so he can forgive you. God transformed the man who murdered his people so he can transform you. God raised up the man who murdered his people into Paul the apostle who is like in the Christian hall of fame of faith. And so he can transform you. Doesn't matter what you did last night. Doesn't matter what you have going on in your past. There is no one living beyond hope of God's grace to save and transform and that includes you. That's the point of the story of Paul. There is always hope. There is no person in this room who is beyond hope of redemption. What Paul's story says to us, what it shows to us, what it proves to us is that our past does not limit our future. Because if anyone had a limited past, it would have been Paul. He did the worst stuff possible, and yet he had no limit to where he could go in God's kingdom. Paul proves that your past does not define or limit your future. There is always hope for a new day with our God. Because Saul became Paul, there will always be hope. There's hope for any person in this room. You can be redeemed. There's hope for any marriage in this room. It can be reconciled. There is hope for any addict in this room. You can be healed. There is hope for any wayward child in this room. You can be restored. Because of Paul, there is always hope. It's the third thing that this story proves to us. 
drives away hopelessness. There's always hope to be saved and to be transformed. Finally, fourth thing this story does for us, it proves to us that we are loved. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love that verse because Paul gets personal. Usually he's not. Usually he's teacher, apostle, elder. And so he talks about how God loves you or how God loves us or how God loves the church. But here it's, it's me. It's, it's, it's how Jesus loves me, the guy who persecuted him. It's about how, how Jesus gave himself up. He died for me, the guy who tried to kill all of his followers. I, I look at this verse and it gives me such hope because there's a lot of days when I just don't feel very lovable. It's actually the number of days when I don't feel lovable has grown as I have aged. I've found that the longer that I live on this planet, the more unlovable I see that I am. Because the longer I have in life, the more I get to see my selfishness and my pride. That's kind of how life works. You're young and you think you're great. You get older and you see, no, you're not. No. <laughs> you, you see just how ugly your life is. The longer you live, you see just how fallen you are, how broken you are, how, how awful you can be. And then you have kids and you get angry at your kids and impatient with your kids. And I feel like parenting is an exercise in guilt because that's how you feel every day as parents because you see all of these things that you could have done better, that you should have done better and you just feel awful about it. And so, so many days, I just feel incredibly unlovable. I can't imagine that anyone could love a man like me. And so then I read about Saul in Acts chapter nine. I read Galatians two, verse 20. And and I take comfort from the fact that maybe, just maybe if Jesus could love a man like that, maybe he can love a man like me. If Jesus can love a man who killed his followers, then surely he can love a guy like me. With all of my faults, with all of my failures that you guys don't know anything about, God knows, and yet surely he can love me if he can love a man like that. That's what Paul's life shows to us, that, that God can love incredibly unlovely people. What that means for you right now is that right, right here, right now, God loves you right this moment. So it's not like just true when you were singing or wasn't true like some years ago when you accepted Jesus. Uh, it, it's not true just in some kind of academic or intellectual or theological. Right now, God looking down from heaven, he sees you, he knows your name, he knows everything about you. Nothing's hidden from his sight, and yet he loves you. He loves you so much, I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote this later in his life. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a mouthful. Most important part is right there towards the end. Nor any other created thing. That's you. That's me. Point of that is that there's nothing you can do and there's nothing that I can do to separate us from the love of God. What does that mean? His love is unconditional. That's what the word unconditional means. It is without condition. So God loves you in such a way, with such intensity, with such passion and commitment that there is literally nothing you could do that would ever diminish his love for you. Okay, so let's just think about this. What that means 
is that God would not love you more right now if you did not do that thing last night you feel bad about. God does not love you more right now if you would have not done that thing years ago that keeps you awake at night. God would not love you more right now if you had not said those horrible things or hurt that person in your life. No, then his love would be conditional. But God's love is unconditional. Paul proves it because if God's love was conditional, then Paul would have lost it. He would have lost it when he lined up men and women who were followers of Christ to be executed. If he didn't lose God's love, then you're not going to lose God's love. God's love for you is absolutely unconditional. It is so absolute, in fact, that when you were lost in sin, when you were separated from God, God the Father sent his son to take all of your sins upon himself, to die in your place and rise from the dead so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. It's the good news of the gospel. You don't work for God's love. You don't pay it back. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. It's yours for free because Jesus earned it. All you have to do is say, yes, God, I want that. I, I, I want eternal life. I want forgiveness as a free gift. The moment you, you say that to God, you, you receive those. You are loved by God. You are in God's family for eternity. And for those of us who, who have received that gift, what we need to remind ourselves, and this is just something you're going to have to say to yourself. This is something I have to say to myself. When I have quiet times, when I go to bed at night, I have to remind myself, Blake, I know you're not feeling very lovable right now, and you shouldn't because look at what you did. But God's love is unconditional, and by definition, what does that mean? He loves you as much right now as he would if you wouldn't have done it. His love for you is absolute and infinite and will never diminish. If he loves Saul enough to turn him into Paul, then he loves me and he loves you, and nothing will ever change that. The challenge is we have to believe it. We, we have to tell ourselves that truth, because we don't feel it. It's not what the world tells us. It's never what you'll hear from the world. So we're going to close in prayer, and I'm going to give you a minute. I just want you to go before the Lord, and I want you to say to the Lord, God, thank you. Help me to believe that you love me. Help me to believe that your love is absolute and unconditional and will never be diminished. I want you to give thanks to God for his love. I want you to grow to believe that he loves you unconditionally and infinitely, that if he loved a man like Paul, he can love a person like you. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for this absolutely miraculous story in Acts chapter 9. We praise you that you did not give up on Saul. He deserved it. He deserved your punishment. He deserved your wrath. And instead, you gave him grace. You showed up in blinding light. You spoke to him. You revealed to him that you exist, that you are Lord, that you are good. And you invited him into salvation and into your family. And you transformed him. You totally changed his life. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you have proven your grace and love in Paul. We thank you that you love us in the same way. You don't love us less than you love Paul. You love us the same amount, Lord. You love us infinitely and unconditionally. We praise you for that, Lord, but it's so hard for us to believe because we see all of the junk that we do. We, we hear all of the junk that we say. We, we know all of the horrible things that we think about, and so we feel incredibly unlovely. It is hard for us to imagine that anyone, let alone the God who created heaven and earth, who is pure and perfect and righteous, would want to have anything to do with us. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us, that you would persuade us, that you would convince us that you love us, that your love is absolute and unconditional. I pray for any person in this room right now who simply cannot wrap their mind around the fact that you love them. I pray that you would persuade their hearts of that, that you would help them to believe it, and that through your love that you would transform them, that they would feel accepted by you, that they would feel hope in your love love, that they would feel confidence and joy and freedom from fear in your love, and that your love would take them and mold them and make them into an amazing follower of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we celebrate that no one in this room is beyond hope of your grace, that every one of us can become part of the hall of fame of faith. Lord, we praise you that you can do great things through us. So we pray that we would go from here believing that we are loved and that there is hope. Thank you that you have earned that love and that hope for us, Jesus, by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead to defeat sin and death for us. You are good to us beyond anything we could ever repay or even imagine. Thank you for the gift that you've given us, Lord Jesus. We praise you for your love. In your name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.